And before we go to God's word together, let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Father God, it is our joy to come before you and to feast upon not only your table, but your revealed will. We pray, Father, that you would help us to come as sons needing bread, not as experts to critique. We pray, Lord, that you would build us up by your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Sinclair Ferguson's most recent book I cannot recommend to you highly enough. It's called The Whole Christ. It's it's such a gift to the Reformed world, especially in the PCA right now with us having conflicting views on sanctification. I love how what he does as only he can is he cuts right through the middle in that book using a like 200, 300-year-old controversy in, a, in the Scottish church. He cuts right through in the way only he can. He critiques and challenges both the so-called TRs and the so-called grace boys and points them both right back to the historic reformed gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. I highly recommend it to you. It's called The Whole Christ. One point that he made in there messed me up. And I've been dealing with it and thinking about it. He, he, he said this. I'm going to just kind of paraphrase it a quote. And he said this. He said, don't ever fall into the error of thinking that God the Father is aloof or austere, and that it is the essence of the work of Christ to make the Father love us. No. The Father sent the Son because the Father loved us. He goes on to say that many ministers will get that right on a theological exam, but from a practical standpoint, they minister as if the Father is only loving because forced to by Christ. Brothers, if we aren't grounded in the incredible love of God the Father for sinners, we as ministers are prone to an idolatry of ourself, of our ministry, and to missing out on biblical gospel ministry to God's flock. Even those of us in ministry, those of us who are, you know, professional Christians, we can slip into idolatry easily. We can often, we integrate our idols into our ministry, and it becomes hard to distinguish biblical ministry from a ministerial idol. And so for help, I thought this morning we would turn to an Old Testament prophet of Hosea. I'll give you some context here to set up Hosea in case it's been a while since seminary or you've preached through Hosea. Hosea is a minor prophet. He's about 750 years before Christ. So the same distance between us and the Black Death that killed like a third of Europe, that's like about 750 years. So that same distance between Christ and Hosea. And he was called to preach to a relatively prosperous country. And he was called to preach to a people who were fully engaging in the most popular religious movement of the day, Baal worship, or as we in South Carolina say, Baal. This was a country of farmers. And what happened was these priests of Baal, they knew that farmers have real needs, and the Baaltist cult had practical answers. They needed crops to grow. And so the Baaltist cult planters went out across the land, and they were, man, they were in sync with what attracted that key demographic. Baal had a very relevant, authentic worship style. He was the kind of idol you worshipped with all your glands. 
he was a fertility god. And he needed to be reminded and inspired to be fertile. And so worship in the Baeltus cult, the farmers would come and they would engage in an act of fertility, let's call it, with a cult prostitute. Baal was very popular with males ages 16 and up. Parents were so excited, their young men actually wanted to go to worship. Baal's men's ministry was just exploding. I mean, with all the number of Baaltist congregations popping up with their incredible ministry to men and to young boys, the priests of Baal were continuously on the cover of idolatry today. Everyone knew who they were. They were headliners at the Idolatry Coalition annual conference. They sold out the amphitheater at Together for the Idol. They were so popular. Even when all the really serious guys got together at that campground between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, you know, the Twin Seas Fellowship, the Baeltists were there. Every strand, from conservative to more progressive, they wanted to know what was the secret these Baeltists had. And into this mess, God calls Hosea. And he tells him, My people, my wife by covenant continue to cheat on me with Baal. So I want you to marry a prostitute, probably one of the ones from the Baal temple. She will cheat on you, and I want you to love her anyway. And your life will be my prophecy to Israel, pointing out my tenacious love for my people. And so as you go through Hosea in general, in this text in particular, on purpose, the Holy Spirit is very vague on, is this Hosea and Gomer? Is this God and his people? It's not clear, and it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to, the messiness is supposed to be there. So with that in mind, let's go to God's word now. Hosea chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. This is God's word. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. This is God's word. And so as we walk through this text today, the one thing I want you to remember and to get from this is this, that when the idols of ministry try to seduce us away, 
God seduces us back with his tenacious love. And we need that because our hearts are prone to wander. If you ask these ancient Israelites, they would say, well, we haven't abandoned God in our heart. They did all that Moses stuff, but they just added the relevant and the needs-based Baal stuff too. The text says that they took the gracious gifts of God and they basically said, thanks, Baal. And so, verse 8, God comes and basically says, look, my people are my wife by covenant. And they are a wife who has not learned that I, her husband, gave her everything. And she's turned around and given all that stuff in worship to Baal. And God's response, well, in verse 9, he takes away their prosperity. And in verse 10, even more, he shames his wife publicly. Now, as you go through Hosea, this actually happened. Hosea goes to the slave market and actually has to rebuke his wife and then grab her and drag her back out of the slave market publicly. And so, too, in history, Assyria comes and wipes these people out. They are gone. They are carried away as slaves. Why would God allow such a thing? Because he will not let his people wallow in the bondage of idolatry, even when that idolatry feels and seems so fulfilling. Look what he says with me in verse 11. He says, And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. See, these activities were meant to remind the nation of, of God's goodness in the past and His continued grace in the present. Those are all going to be gone in exile. They are going to miss those things. This open marriage with Baal had corrupted every part of their religious life. And so here's the point. Look with me at verse 13. God says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Do you see the analogy that God is using here? Israel is a wife who gets dressed up in her finest in front of her husband. He's putting on the ring. He bought her. He's putting on the jewelry. He got her as gifts because he loves her and she's taking them so she can run to another lover and completely forget God, completely forget her husband. Israel is in God's land. Wearing God's clothes, eating God's food, and she's worshiping Baal. And you can see from this way she's getting all worked up and dressed up. She loved Baal. And you can sense the pain and betrayal almost in God's voice here. You don't even remember me. You've forgotten me. This is profound idolatry. Now, of course, we as professional Christians, our idolatry is much more subtle. But I ask you, dear brothers, are we ministers of the commentaries or are we ministers of the Word? Are we those who study God's Word professionally for the benefit of others to be faithful to our calling or are we sons in need of bread from our Father? How does our weekly schedule answer those questions? I mean, I know how it is. I'm I'm one of you. I I went to seminary, right? I would love to spend more time in the scriptures just devotionally, but I've got four meetings, a hospital visit, two sermons a Sunday, that Bible study to take care of, and a session meeting and devotional. I just don't have time to spend with God because I'm doing ministry. Don't look at me so shocked. We've all done this. I know. 
Or is it you're like, dude, there's lay people here. Okay, we're going to have to stop right here. You're supposed to laugh when I make a joke. It makes it really awkward when you don't. Okay, thank you. All right. See, we too, if you think about it, we have gone after our own idols in the very presence of God. In the ministry of his service, we have been doing other things. Ooh, they'll really like it if I can turn this phrase this way. Not, God's people will get it if I use this much more simpler language. Look how eloquent I sound. Yeah, but they'll really get it if I talk this way. Well, back to the text. In verse 12, Israel, Gomer... She, she's referring to her stuff, her gifts. Notice what the word that he uses there in verse 12. The stuff, she says these are the wages given by her lovers. Notice that word wages. We see God's opinion of idolatry. By using the word wages, the Spirit tells it like it is. Gomer's not the only prostitute in this text. Israel is a prostitute. She has worshipped Baal. And assumes that her fertile crops are gifts from him. And God says, no, if you're right, those are actually prostitutes' wages. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to show you who the real fertility God is. I love how his answer is. He's going to take her nice, cultivated, fertile crops. And instead of wiping them out, he's going to make them so overgrown that they're useless. You want fertility? Try this. Her crops are going to be eaten by all these animals that are going to come because there's so many livestock around, so much overgrown. It's like trying to get the kudzu out of your backyard here in South Carolina. Right? And notice, these are, these are God's people. He's not talking to the pagan Philistines. This is his people who've been given his law, who have his worship, who have his ordinances. Look how far he must go to get their attention. How far? Will God have to take us into trials and frustrations in our lives and in our ministries until we repent of our idols? I mean, idols are subtle. They can be loving the benefits of Christ over Christ Himself. I mean, Christ gives us purpose. He gives us peace. He gives us forgiveness, joy, healed relationships. But what happens when we lose those benefits? What happens when the peace is gone? What happens when relationships are strange? What happens when our ministries seem purposeless? It's in those times we find out if we have loved Christ or if we have only loved the benefits. But what if we would love Jesus as our King, our Savior, our Hero, our Husband? See, our hearts are prone to wander. But the good news is that it's not up to us to pull ourselves up and get serious with our faith. That This text shows that God Himself comes and helps His people be faithful. Look with me at verse 10. God says to His people, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of My hand. See, God will shame His people to break them of their idolatrous pursuits. Or maybe you don't quite get what he's saying here, how the Apostle James would say 800 years later, count it all joy when God sends trials to build our steadfastness. Get rid of the pathetic, needy image of God that so many of us have. He is a holy, righteous God who loves His people enough to shame us in our idolatry. 
But there's grace here as well. Did you catch those words? Right along with shame is out of my hand. Just as Hosea had to go down to the slave market and publicly grab his wife, and everybody would say, that's his own wife. So too, when God's people were wiped out by these other nations, they would make fun and say, their God can't take care of them. Look, Assyria's gods must be bigger than their God. Their national defeat being dragged off to exile was seen as a failure of God by the other nations. He was mocked. He took on this shame himself. Our God lets himself be shamed with his people when he shames them. That shows us the loving heart of our God. And it points us ultimately to Christ who on the cross was shamed ultimately for God's people that we might be free. We are free from condemnation and guilt for our sin because Jesus Christ endured the shame of the cross. It is that grace of God that saves us and it is that continuing grace of God to Christians which overcomes our idolatrous hearts. That is why we ministers, we need this beautiful love of God for sinners. That the heart of our God and Father is that He loves sinners. We never get past that gospel because even though our hearts are prone to wander, it's not about our faithfulness. I love how this text takes a twist here at verses 13 and 14. We, we expect this climax of judgment. The emotional tenor of the text is kind of building up. And God's like, I'm going to punish her. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then right when it gets to a crescendo, we see the word therefore. And like, oh, here it comes. Because we expect God to be like us, right? Here's the big explosion where I just vent my frustration and my selfishness and my pain all on you. But that's not who God is. Look what comes after his therefore in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God's solution to unfaithfulness, to cheating on Him, is not punishment, but courtship. Baal seduced God's people away, and so God will seduce them back. What wondrous love is this? God is a husband who refuses to let his his wife leave him. He's, going, he's not going to let her go. He's going to love her back. When I was ministering in St. Louis, this wonderful dear couple in my church was a former Marine. They had been in the Marines together for 20 years, and they had, this, and they had a passionate marriage, let's say. You could tell that they liked to argue. And they had this wonderful saying. And I, 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 the first time I heard them, it was they didn't know I was listening because they were having like a little argument on Wednesday night dinner. And it got to this point where mo- many couples would just like frustrated and do the silent treatment. And he stopped and looked at her and he goes, you know no one's getting out of this marriage alive. She goes, I know that. Isn't that a great sentiment? And that's exactly what God is saying here. I won't let your idolatrous hearts leave me, even if it costs my life. Thanks be to God, because if it were up to our faithfulness, we'd have no hope. Now, I realize we're Presbyterians, and I just said a about three minutes ago, that God is a seducer, and you didn't throw anything. I do appreciate that. It makes us squeamish to talk about God that way. It's almost embarrassing, right? Please get control of your emotions, God. We're Presbyterians. But this is the amazing, tenacious love of our God. He's pouring out His heart in this text to win back an unfaithful people like us. He's publicly holding on to His prostitute wife who doesn't particularly want to come back. The text, the the picture is Hosea is dragging Gomer and God's dragging his people. 
And he's basically screaming out for all her rivals, you can't have her, she's mine. Do you really understand that our God loves that tenaciously? Or is it more an antiseptic, theological, studied view that keeps God at a distance? Here in Hosea, God shows us the kind of love that loves the unlovely. Don't miss the key metaphor that God himself sets up when he tells her, go to him, go and marry a prostitute. I mean, it's one thing to love a pure, fresh, attractive, young, and can I say it? Hot bride. It is quite another thing to love a beat up, used up, ragged, old, cheating prostitute. As Hosea did God. And as God for us. That is the tenacious love of God that holds on to His people. Do you believe in that love of God? Brothers, does that tenacious love of God empower your ministry? Or are we so distracted with the stress and the trials, looking to our performance and our fruitfulness, that we have forgotten this tenacious love? As we see here in Hosea, often this tenacious, idol-destroying love takes us, he says, to the wilderness. Our guilty consciences, we interpret that immediately as the woodshed, but that's not what the text says. It's a place together of focus and love and peace where the relationship can be renewed. Often, for us, that is a hardship, that is a trial, and if we choose to interpret it as a woodshed, we miss that, no, this is a place of focus of getting rid of our sin and our idols and going back into relationship with our loving husband through Jesus Christ. Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan pastor, many of you don't, I don't need to introduce him to you. He knew suffering. He knew pain. He explained it like this. There was no talking to her heart while he and she were in the fair and flourishing city and at ease, but only in the cold, hungry, waste wilderness he allureth her and whispered into her ear there and said, Thou art mine. That is the glorious, tenacious love of God. Israel loved Baal like we love our idols, but God's love is so overwhelming that verse 15 tells us it will cause His people to fall back in love with Him. So much so they will sing to Him. And then in verse 16, God's people will look to him and they will again say, my husband. And ultimately, the idea of God's people calling him my husband looks to the new covenant in Christ where his people are his bride, are given a new heart, made into a new creation and given the Holy Spirit. Now when Hosea speaks of Israel calling God my husband, he's looking forward to us in the church. Oh, dear brothers, this is the tenacious love of God that our people long for, that our communities are dying to hear about. But we can't share it with them if we are not marinating our hearts in this tenacious love of God. Repent of looking to your ministry for your fulfillment. Don't look to the size of your church how robust your evangelism program is, how good your discipleship ministries are. 
for your security and your status or proof that you're important. Instead, look to this tenacious love of God for filthy, rebellious sinners like us. Let your heart swim in that love. And from the overflow of God's love, minister the gospel to your people. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, Lord, we confess that we often have a very academic, antiseptic view of your love. Would you forgive us for blaspheming in our minds about your character? For not believing the simple New Testament, God is love. Lord, would you sear the truth of your amazing love into our hearts? Would you help us to believe it? Lord, we are weak. Help our unbelief. And from the overflow of this love, would you bless our people through ministering out of this love that they might know this love. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word and prepare our hearts for communion. Would you please rise and sing?